we're happy to have Susan McNabb of Phoenix and North Carolina with us today. Under the name Suki McMinn, Susan started writing contemporary vampire romance novels set in the Los Angeles modeling scene, and she has a Waller County cozy vampire mystery series that we'll hear from later today. She's also written a memoir about her career as a Los Angeles model and commercial actor, which includes details about working with Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, for 17 years. It also touches on the period of time she dated comedian Jerry Seinfeld and much more. So glad to have you on Murder in the Air, Susan. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Now, before we get to your memoir, you started writing a paranormal cozy mystery series and your romance novels under a pseudonym, Suki McMinn. Talk a little bit about why you decided to use the pen name and what challenges it might present for you. Well, I start, when I started writing, I should back up and say I had another career before. As you mentioned, I lived in L.A. and did lots of other things. And I started writing when I was 49 and discovered fan fiction. And I didn't have the nerve to try to, you know, publish anything yet for a long time. So I became really active on the fan fiction scene. And my name there was Suki59. Everybody has like a fake name because people are scared to beat themselves on there. So, um, And I stole my name from my dog, Suki. So when I um, started publishing my own work, I had this brilliant notion, and I'm being sarcastic, that I would name myself Suki McMinn. Now, McMinn is my husband's last name, which I did not take when we got married. My last name is McNabb. And so you can see why I didn't hyphenate. But... (laughs) Which actually now, and I think about it, that would be a fabulous pen name, Susan McNabb McMinn. There you go. I love it. But anyway, so, so I became Suki McMinn when I published my fiction. And at the time, I was writing some nonfiction as well. I worked um, for a magazine and I wrote for a newspaper column. I had a newspaper column in North Carolina. So I wanted to separate my fiction and nonfiction. And so I'm Susan when I write nonfiction and I'm Suki when I write fiction. Now, to answer the second part of your question, yes, those were all horrible mistakes that I made. <laughs> because what was I thinking? It's like twice the work. I have to pay for two websites. Every time I do my social media marketing, I have to do everything twice. It takes twice as much time, twice as much money. And I was delivering some books recently to a store here in North Carolina. And They said, oh, it's too bad Suki McMahon is on the cover of that book because you have name recognition here, but that's that's not the name on the book. And I'm like, of course, because I have this newspaper column here. I'm a little bit famous in this little tiny town, and it's hard enough to get name recognition for one name, and now I have to do it twice? It's like, what was I thinking? (laughs) Do you think that would ever change, or are you just going to keep going with that? Well, I, I kind of have to keep going at this point. I don't know how I would change it because I've got, not that I've got such a volume of fabulous books out, but well, but it, I have sort of created two worlds sure. and it would it would be a, a pain in the, you know, what, to sure. try to try to fix it at this point. But yeah, to all you young kitties out there that you think it's going to be so cool to have pen names, it's just a lot more work and yeah. Okay. <laughs> it sort of dilutes the work that you do do it right. it dilutes the uh, the strength of it i think i see so yeah don't and do i think it. that's important for people to to realize you know or, or yeah to, and you know i get it a lot of a lot of authors like if you're an elementary school teacher and you're writing erotica yeah you should probably have a pen name 
but sure. but to do it just for the sake of the fun of it, that's not that fun. <laughs> okay, good point. You also use a lot of humor in your books, and that can be challenging for some. Does that come pretty easily for you? Uh, and then how do you determine whether what's funny to you is going to be funny to somebody else? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, it does kind of come naturally to me. I've always been very interested in humor and comedy and um, I had a, I'm from a funny family and so I grew up with a lot of funny people and I was always really attracted to funny men you might have noticed I dated one particularly funny mm-hmm. um, very famous one and he was not my only stand-up comedian boyfriend okay. <laughs> so Good I was know. you know my girlfriends were chasing rock stars in Hollywood I was chasing stand-up comedians nice. so uh, so I, I learned a lot from being around funny people and professionally funny people. Elvira has also been a big influence on my writing. She's also very, very funny professionally. And I don't really, you know, it's funny when you say, if, what if something's funny to you and not funny to other people? I never really thought about that. That is kind of a horrifying thought. <laughs> I'm just laughing. <laughs> well, I didn't and know if you ran, do you run it by certain people like your husband or something. Um, I do have, I have a pretty serious collection of beta readers and I have a, um, an editor who is also a writer of comedy herself. So, um, yeah, I try to run it past other people that have a, what I think is a pretty good sense of what's funny and what works. Sure. And, um, and then I just kind of, you know, I just like everything else. I just do my best and hope for the best. So. If some well, and those beta think, readers are important, and and they're a yes. good they're a good sounding board for sure. Right. And if somebody doesn't think it's funny, that's okay. You know, yeah, they'll find something true. else. So that's right. That's right. <laughs> Before writing your memoir, the opposite of famous, you spent a number of years in Los Angeles as a model, a commercial actor, a film and TV extra. You taught acting at Beverly Hills Studios. How did you get from North Carolina into that career in Los Angeles? Well, you know, when you're young, you do foolish things. And <laughs> I, um, yeah, I did that. I can't believe I did that. I was um, uh, raised in Asheville, North Carolina, went to Asheville High and uh, got an English lit degree from the University of Tennessee. I started working for about a year in um, the retail business and I was not happy. So I moved back in with my mother, who at that point had moved to Charlotte. And I started modeling and I just fell in love with it. I'm like, this is, this is what I want to do. Forget English lit. You know, I don't know what I was thinking. This is, I'm going to be a model. So, um, so I, and I was, I got an agent in Charlotte. I got an agent in Atlanta and I worked there for a couple of years. I was going to move to Atlanta and I decided if I'm going to go to a bigger market, what if I checked out New York and Los Angeles? Those would be fun places to go. I was young. Like I said, I was 23 years old when I started modeling. So, um, which is old for a model, which is crazy because it's young for a human. But I went to New York first and I, I didn't love New York. It was a little overwhelming for me at that age. So I went to LA and just fell in love with LA and stayed there. Uh, got an agent and um, just went for it, you know, and, and ended up doing all kinds of things. When you're in that business, um, m- most people that are in that business have to do other things to make money as well. And so... I ended up doing a lot of um, behind-the-scenes stuff. You know, like I worked on uh, different film sets and commercials. I worked for a commercial production company. I taught acting. I, I worked for Elvira, like you said, for 17 years and just had all kinds of crazy, fun adventures. 
and um, just loved it. I worked in front of the camera for 29 years altogether, which is a long, long time. It is a long time. And for, like you said, starting late, if you will, at 23 even. Yeah, that. but that's a good career. That's a good long career. The other impressive and, and fun part you just touched on was when you worked with Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. You were her stand-in, photo double, road manager for 17 years. Tell us about just some of your fondest memories, perhaps, of that time. Oh, my gosh. Do you have a few hours? Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, um, I'm thinking about writing a book about just that. I have three of my chapters in my memoir about her, but I could just go on and on and on. We had so much fun together and Good. worked together for a long, long time. I started, like you said, as her stand-in and photo double. I auditioned for that um, role in her first film, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, and um that was a really great experience. That was the first time I had worked uh, from start to finish on an entire film every day. And so I really got to know a lot about film production and sort of opened my world even further. And I was sort of taking everything in like a sponge at that point. And I continued working for her for eight years as her stand-in and photo double. And then she asked me if I would travel with her as her road manager. And of course, I said, sure, why not? What am I doing? You know, right. I mean, I had no idea even what that meant, but I said, sure, because I did really adore her. I mean, she's just brilliant and funny and wonderful and such good company. And I knew we would have a great time together, if nothing else. Nice. So, yes. um, so yeah, so we traveled for like another where? nine years. And, and everywhere, right? Everywhere. We went, we started in mid-September and we traveled um, to pretty much a different city every day until the end of October which is the Halloween season, as you know. Oh, yes. And um, yeah, we went all over the country. We were, she does personal appearances and, you know, she's the grand marshal in the Halloween parade in New York City and she's on television and, you know, just promoting um, her products. She's a very smart businesswoman too. She has a lot of um, trademarked products that we would, you know, she has a, a pinball machine in Vegas. We did oh, a big reveal of that. She has a guitar that Alice Cooper plays, and you know, it was a cool gig. So, um, so yeah, Did we you traveled. Book those events, or was somebody else booking them? Her manager, her manager okay, booked good. all the events. I was just in charge of getting her everywhere she needed to be okay. on time, on time, right? And helping her in whatever capacity that she needed, right. because it's it's a lot, especially when you're traveling, especially by plane. It's like we would, you know, be working till midnight and have to have a you know a six a.m. flight and. Sure. There's a lot of details to keep to, um, to keep up with, but um, so it was hard. I mean, it wasn't an easy job, but it was certainly a fun one, and it kind of worked well with my other career because um, I was able to take off for six weeks at a time, and you know, people that have normal jobs can't really do that. So I would tell my agent, you know, I have to book out for six weeks, and they would go, "Oh no, 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 you need to be here." And I'd say, well, you know, I'm working, working for Elvira. And they go, oh, my God, we love Elvira. Can we have an <laughs> autograph picture? And oh, I go, sure. go, sure. So, yeah, once they know it's her, it's like, right. yes, of course, I could Good. take off. And they were perfectly fine with it. Everybody so, that was, so it was a kind Elvira. of six weeks on and then back home and then six weeks off again? No, it was, it was every day for six weeks. For okay. Between September um, 15th, usually we started, until October 31st. Mm -hmm. And then on November 1st, we were in the spa. <laughs> Oh, getting a yeah. massage. Right. So just prior to up. Halloween then pretty much. that was Just big, Halloween. Yeah. That's time, her big sure. season. Yeah. And then the rest of the year, I did work for her. If she was um, like doing a film or a commercial or something, I would 
Hmm. Anytime she was in the costume, I was sure. working for her. And at that point, it was just like a weekend here or a day there. We'd, you know, do a little gig somewhere just for the weekend. But but yeah, those those um, six weeks around Halloween were pretty intense. We were real busy. Right. And she's still doing it. She's still doing it. Right. She is amazing. Yeah, That is so fun. Well, so to take those good and I'm sure some crazy uh, hard memories and turn them into your memoir, The Opposite of Famous... Talk, tell us about what that process was like. Did your lit degree help with that? Uh, well, my lit degree helps in general with my writing. I don't know if it helped in particular for that book, but um, not every writer needs a literature degree, but it certainly came in handy for me, I think, because I, I sort of had a, a base of um, <laughs> things that I would never sure. be able to achieve. Yeah, <laughs> so, sure. Because sure. I can see what good literature is, but uh, I can't really write it. But anyway, um, just kidding. <laughs> No. Um, so yes, I, um, the, the way I got around to writing the memoir, I didn't really intend to write a memoir. I was writing a novel at the time. I, w- I wrote a Romana clay. And if you don't know what a Romana clay is, don't worry, because I wrote one and I had never heard of it. Oh, I don't uh, know. Tell us what it's, it is. Um, it's a, a fictional account of a real story where you change oh. the names of the people to protect yourself legally. And, um, you can make things up because it's fiction. But okay. it's really a true story. There's some really famous ones like, um, um, oh, I can't think of it. Um, Nora Ephron did one, Heart something, um, Heartburn, that's okay. the one, about her marriage to Carl Bernstein. And of course, uh, she changed the names, but it's all the story of their marriage. And I wrote one about um, a model in Los Angeles who dates comedians, you know, and it was pretty much um, a lot of what happened to me when I was a young woman. And I didn't really know how to go about getting it published. At that point, I had only done fan fiction. And so I was trying to learn about the publishing world. I went to a um, writer's conference in North Carolina and met with some editors and some other, um, you know, publishers and agents and people like that. And I found an editor that was interested in working with me. So I met with her. We had lunch in Charlotte, which is where she lived. And it was about two hours away from me. And she said she wanted to work on the novel. And I said, you know, I need a little bit of a break because <laughs> I had been working on it. I was really tired of it. I just revamped it like a hundred times and and um, was just tired of it. And she said, oh, that's okay. You know, we can, we can do it. Take a little break. And I was telling her some stories about my life in LA. And I told her a funny story about auditioning for music videos. And music videos were big in the 80s. Mm-hmm. I was in a sure. bunch of music videos. And she was laughing and she said, you know, that's really a funny story. She said, you should write down some of those stories, things that happened to you in in LA. And uh, those would be interesting to read. I was like, really? Well, okay. You know, so I wrote them down and sent a few of them to her. And she wrote back and said, you have a book. That's a book. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, now I'm writing a memoir. (laughs) So I, um, you know, I did a deep dive in how to write a memoir and uh, found a bunch of uh, funny women who had successful memoirs and read as much as I could and learned as much as I could. And then I wrote that book and set it aside for a long, long time, <laughs> wrote a bunch of other stuff. And then um, when I was shopping for a literary agent, she liked my vampire books, but I had already published them. So she's like, what else you got? So I sent her all my other stuff that I had. And she picked that out and she said, I like this. Let's try this. And so we did. And then COVID happened. Oh, of course. (laughs) It's like interrupted everybody's life. So I couldn't get it published when I wanted to. I wanted to get it out before 
Elvira's memoir was released because I knew that a lot of her readers um, would maybe hopefully be interested in my book as well. So I had permission from my agent to pull it from, um, you know, we were shopping into publishers because she said, nothing's going to happen for a long time. So right. you have Darn. my blessing, take yeah. it and self-publish it. And that's what I did. I see. And, um, okay. and it, it came out, I think maybe six months before Cassandra's book came out and it was good timing because mine was already out. I didn't look like I copied her. Right, right. And, um, and, and I did get a, a lot of her. Of, a little bit of boost, both sides. Yes, maybe, I right? absolutely yeah. did. Yeah, I yeah. still get, once in a while, I get one of her readers will contact me and say, right. well, hey, I've, you know, I read about you in Cassandra's book, and oh. I bought your book. And I was like, yay. So it did kind of work. <laughs> good. And she oh, did mention fun. me in her book, which was nice. really sweet of her. Yeah, yes. very nice of her. Very good. Okay, so Chasing Comedians. You notice I didn't ask about Jerry Seinfeld first. Tell us how you met him. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. You can ask me about him. I do know people are always curious about him. He is a very interesting guy, and I totally get that, and I don't mind talking about him at all. Um, but yeah, I had a thing for comedians, and um, I was dating a stand-up comic and went to see him at the improv. I saw Jerry on stage, and he was brilliant. I mean, like head and shoulders above all the other comedians. And like I said, I had kind of a fascination with stand-up anyway. I was like studying it for some reason. <laughs> so I really liked him. I went up to him after the show and introduced myself and he completely ignored me and <laughs> wasn't even remotely interested in anything I had to say. I was like, oh, well. So I went home and then a few months later, um, I went to a party and I saw him. I was like, oh, there's that real funny guy. And um, by this time, I was pretty much single and introduced myself to him again. And this time he paid attention and oh, asked for my okay. phone number. And he called me the next morning and we went on on our first date that night. So it was um, pretty fast. And then we um, started dating and he became my boyfriend really quickly. We just sort of fell into it really fast and, mm -hmm. and um, we're very happy until we weren't. <laughs> mm, yeah. And we, but it was we were a together. Number of years, right? It was, it was yeah, we were together for eight years and we did break up and get back together quite a few times. Okay. He was, um, you know, bless his little heart. He really didn't want to be in a committed relationship. And I mm -hmm. totally don't blame him because he was on a rocket, you know, sure. ready to go to the stars and didn't want a wife and kids. And mm -hmm. I did want to get married. So it was kind of rocky because we would, we obviously were in love with each other and loved spending yeah. time with each other and loved being together. But then he would be like, I can't do this. And I'd be like, okay. And so <laughs> we did that a few times. But yeah, but it was a really, really fun um, experience. It was a, you know, crazy experience. I was with him. When I met him, he was just a, a young, he wasn't struggling, but he was a stand-up comic at, and really pretty much unknown. He'd sure. been on The Tonight Show a couple times and okay. was sort of on his way to a, a pretty strong stand-up career, but we had no idea what was coming uh, down the pike with the show, of course, um, later. And I, I broke up, the final breakup was, when he was really at the height of the success of the show. So I saw that whole change in his world from just, you know, traveling around the country doing stand-up to just being a mega, mega star. And it was crazy. It was totally crazy. Yeah. And people can read more about that in The Opposite of Famous, too, which is a great story. Um, and has lots of great photos in it, too, which I'm so glad you put those in as well. So you moved to Phoenix... And then you go back to North Carolina in the summers. 
Um, you have a tribe of writers there and, and kind of an active group of, of uh, people of the same mind. Uh, tell us about that group there. I do. Um, there's a little group here with a tiny town. Tryon is very, very small. We have, I think, 1,600 people now, and which was a big change from Los Angeles, as you can it's imagine. True, true. But it's a really um, interesting little town. They have lots and lots of artists and writers and a really supportive community. Um, so, you know, they, they, we have lots of readings and, and workshops, and, and a bunch of the writers here got together and decided to form Tryon Writers which is a very loosely formed <laughs> group. Anyone's welcome to join. You don't even have to live in Tryon or, or even around Tryon if you want to join. You just go to the Facebook page and like our page and you're a member. So it's pretty easy. But, um, but it's, it, it has been helpful to, um, to sort of organize the, the writers here. And, you know, people want to have a critique group, you can post on the page and get a group together. Mm, or mm -hmm. um, if you want to organize a reading in town, we have a, a, we just recently started a new poetry reading at the coffee shop, which is really fun. And we have um, an artist and writer's coffee once a week that we get together and just talk about the artistic processes. And, you know, we get into philosophy of art and all kinds oh, wow. of cool things. Nice. It's been, it's been really fun. So yeah, I, I love this little town. It's a great town for an artist to, yeah. to live in. That's great. So a few other writing uh, type questions. Uh, tell us about your writing process and when the best time for you is typically to write. Um, I usually, I start early and I usually start with my marketing stuff. I do my social media posts and whatnot um, for the first two or three hours of my day. And then I start writing. And then I have lunch and then I go back and write some more until dinner and then I'm done. I stay um, off the computer for the evenings when, when my husband and I are in the same place. When he's traveling, I write at night too. But if he's home, I feel like it's just kind of rude to sure. shut the door and go in there and type away. So um, I, I treat it like a job. You know, I mm -hmm. do it um, like normal job hours would be. And I, um, when I first started writing, I was really obsessed about it and obsessive about it. I, I, like I said, I was 49 years old and I had never really experienced um, anything quite like it. And at first I would literally like wake up in the middle of the night and have to run and write a chapter. <laughs> I couldn't eat. I would forget meals and I just was really crazy. And I got better. <laughs> I learned how to balance it a little bit better with the rest of my life. And so now I, um, I do, if I wake up with a story idea, I just go back to sleep because I know there'll be another one tomorrow. I see. And okay. I've gotten pretty good about just making it like a normal job. Right. Good. What's the most surprising thing you've discovered about writing? I think the biggest surprise for me was that feeling of just, I, you know, obsessive isn't really not the right word. It's... Um, just joy, you know, when you really are into something that you're doing. And I think it's probably true for all artists. Um, you lose track of time. You're so completely focused on something and you just, you know, um, it's like going down a rabbit hole, I guess, is another, another way to put it. And that's just really, really fun. It's a great feeling. And I didn't know how great it was <laughs> yeah. until I really started doing it. And it was just an amazing discovery in my life. And I was like, I want to do this all the time. Good. And so that's what I do. That's good. And you have been very prolific too. So what are you working on next? Um, I have a, always have a bunch of things going. Um, 
I have a tendency to start things and then start another one and then start another one. Yeah. But um, I have a series right now. I'm, I'm writing mostly romantic comedy right now. Um, I have a series set in the 80s in Los Angeles about a model who loves comedians. I know that sounds very familiar. Um, and I've been working on that. And then I also have a, another series in the same world, but in the 90s. And these people are not models and comedians. They are commercial actors and directors mm. and producers and that sort of thing. Because they also worked in the commercial world for a long time. Right. So I set that book there. Um, I have four uh, anthologies that I'm committed to in the next few months. Two of them are Great. nonfiction and two of them are fiction. So I'm working on those stories at the same time. And I also have always several um, books that are half finished that I keep saying I'm going to go back to. And 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 I have, you know, that first Ramona Clay that I wrote, I've mm-hmm. never published that. Really? I've never really finished it. I keep, huh. I take it out every few years and look at it and fiddle with it. And I go, I don't know. And I put it back down. Next. Something yeah. shiny comes along and right. I'm writing another romance or something. Yeah, yeah. So Susan is going to read a chapter from her paranormal cozy mystery series written as Suki McMinn called The Vampire of Waller County. Please give us a synopsis and set up the section you're going to read. Okay, I wrote this book right after I moved to Phoenix. I missed Tryon so much. And so I decided to write um, a story set in a little fictional Tryon. And at the same time, I had just taken a course in our little workshop, not little, a workshop in um, The Hero's Journey, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And it's just a, a writer's, you know, template basically about um, the path that the, that the main character takes. And I was fascinated with The Hero's Journey and I was also eager to, I, to take myself back to Little Tryon Town, which I called Hogback. And then I threw in a vampire or two, you know, just for fun. <laughs> sure. So that's how the vampire of Waller County was born. So here's the blurb on the back cover. What if a single injection could turn humans into vampires? And what if that drug fell into the hands of a devious man bent on creating his own army of monsters? Dr. Jim Samuels sets his sights on the sleepy town of Hogback, North Carolina, tucked into the picturesque foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains. He's counting on finding the kind of simple-minded fools he needs to execute his plan, but he's dead wrong. When Nathan Waller interferes with the doctor's evil scheme, he puts everyone he loves in danger. Can he save sweet Holly McReady in time? Can he step up to be the hero of Waller County? Can he do it in wet pajamas and Bigfoot slippers? Halloween and Hogback will never be the same, and neither will Nathan Waller. Okay, this is chapter seven. Nathan woke to the sound of a man screaming. He opened his eyes and saw Ned Cooper's terrified face, his mouth open in an O. Nathan sat up and screamed back. What are we screaming about? Then he remembered, oh yeah, I'm a monster. Mr. Cooper, he said, wait, wait, it's okay. He must look a fright, a corpse sitting on, what exactly was he on? He looked around the room. He was in the center of it on the big table. Good Lord all mode, has he embalmed me? Did he cut me open? Am I an autopsied piece of meat? He grabbed Mr. Cooper by the wrist and the screaming climbed an octave. Mr. Cooper, I'm not dead, he shouted. Is that true? The screaming stopped. Nathan, Nathan, oh my God, you're alive. Do you know I almost, oh my God. Nathan felt his chest, his stomach, his, I'm okay, I'm still here, I'm all here. He was still wearing his pajamas. 
It must be after sunset. That's when vampires wake up, right? Oh, Nathan, I was about to. You don't want to know. And then I was going to call your mother. Oh, my God. My mother. Suddenly, it all came rushing back to him. His mother was in danger. He had to find out if Rand had contacted Dr. Samuels. He checked his breast pocket. No phone. I had a phone, he said. He jumped up from the table and turned to find the stainless panel with the drawers. Mr. Rand. He opened the center drawer, but there was no body bag. He reached in and felt around, but it was just empty, cold metal. He slammed the drawer and opened the top drawer. Nothing. Then the bottom one, where he had sought refuge as Dawn took him. Nothing. Where's Mr. Rand? He asked in a panic. And where's the phone I had? I put the phone in a personal belongings bag, Mr. Cooper replied. Nathan, what's happening? The guy, he said. Where's the dead guy with the thumb? Mr. Cooper scanned the room, clearly still stunned. Mr. Rand, Nathan shouted. Where is he? I need you to focus. The man from Raleigh? Mr. Cooper seemed to be coming around to understanding. That Sheriff Teague brought in? Yes, Mr. Rand. We cremated him this afternoon. The sheriff said it was urgent because of his religion. Sweet Christmas on a crutch. Cremated? That can't be true. I need his thumb. Nathan grabbed Mr. Cooper by the shoulders and screamed into his face, I need his thumb. Mr. Cooper just shook his head, either not comprehending or unable to produce the needed thumb. He's gone, was all he said. Give me your phone then. Nathan had to find out whether his mother was okay. Mr. Cooper pulled his phone from his pants pocket and showed it to Nathan. Call my mother. Mr. Cooper pulled up Margaret Waller's number and handed the phone to Nathan. Hello, hello, he said. Hello, his mother answered. Thank the heathens, she's okay. Ned? No, mom, it's me. I borrowed Mr. Cooper's phone. Are you okay? No, I'm not okay. I'm buried in trick-or-treaters over here. Nathan breathed a sigh of relief and realized he didn't need to breathe. Where are you, he asked. At the Gilberts in Skyuka. I told you, I'm dog-sitting until Monday. Did you forget already? Yes, yes, I forgot. You're okay. You're in Skyuka. I really can't talk, sweetie. The little monsters come in waves. I'm afraid I'm going to run out of candy. Is everything all right? Are you with the stroll? He forgot it was Halloween. Everything's fine, Mom, except I'm dead and a blood-sucking monster. He looked at Mr. Cooper and noticed for the first time a blue vein in the center of his forehead that disappeared into his hairline. It looked delicious. Just stay there and don't open the door to any strangers with bald heads. You mean like bald caps? I don't understand. Never mind, Mom. Just be careful. Are you okay, honey? I'm fine. God, what am I? I'm not fine. I'll talk to you tomorrow. She was okay, safely in Skyuka, miles away from the home address Mr. Rand would have shared with Dr. Samuels. Nathan hung up and handed the phone back to Mr. Cooper. She's safe, he said, mostly to himself. He'd been so consumed with keeping his mother's identity and personal information from Dr. Samuels that he hadn't considered the safety of Holly. Had, hadn't they asked about his girlfriend? They had watched him in front of the theater talking to her. Did they know her name, where she lived? Do you have the number for the theater? Nathan asked Mr. Cooper. I think so, he said, and fiddled with his phone before handing it to Nathan. There were three rings before the voicemail answered. Holly's mom. Thank you for calling the Hogback Theater. We're currently closed. Please call back during regular business hours and check our website to see what's playing. He hung up and returned the phone to Mr. Cooper. I don't understand what's happening, Nathan, he said. When I found you earlier, he shook his head. 
It's okay, Mr. Cooper. Everything's going to be okay. He had never been more certain he was lying, but he didn't want to upset Mr. Cooper any further. He didn't think he could handle it if he started screaming again. Mr. Cooper wrinkled his brow, the one with the vein calling to Nathan for a quick snack. Listen, I have to go, Nathan said. Please don't tell anyone I was here, okay? He nodded. I'll explain everything later. I will? I'm sure I'll see you at the next tomato festival committee meeting. I found my grandmother's recipe for tomato gravy, by the way. I think it's going to be a winner. But right now, I have to get downtown to the stroll. Now that he knew his mother was safely out of the clutches of Dr. Samuels, all Nathan could think of was getting to Holly. And of course, his obligation to make the tomato festival a success, but that wasn't nearly as pressing. Thanks for not embalming me, he said. I've got to run. He shook Mr. Cooper's hand, sincerely grateful all his parts were intact and he didn't have embalming fluid flowing through his veins. Then he dashed out the door and up the steps, wondering what would be the fastest way to get to the Hogback Theater and to save Holly McReady from certain peril. That was great. That was Susan McNabb reading from her paranormal cozy mystery series called The Vampire of Waller County, written under her pseudonym, Suki McMinn. Thank you so much for being with us today, Susan. Thank you so much for having me. What a fun time. Good. It was lots of fun, yes. You can find Susan at susanmcnab.com and Suki at sukimcmin.com, and that's S-U-K-I. M-C-M-I-N-N dot com. Both Suki and Susan are on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, and the details are in the show notes. Our author extra features novelist and former FBI agent Arthur Kearns. Art had a career in counterintelligence and counterterrorism, which took him to more than 65 countries. He stayed active in retirement as a consultant for the Director of Central Intelligence and the Department of State and as a past president of the Arizona chapter of the Association of Former Intelligence Officers. He has three titles in his Hayden Stone espionage thriller series about a CIA operative who travels the globe dealing with terrorist plots, Middle East militants, deadly virus weaponry, and more. Days of the Hunters is a spin-off of the Hayden Stone series where his partner, Sandra Harrington, a tough young CIA case officer, takes the lead when Stone narrowly escapes assassination. His award-winning short stories have been published in a number of anthologies, most recently, So West, Desert Justice. His latest manuscript is A Suitable Spy, a World War II espionage novel set in South America, And he started a new novel, a surrealistic spy spoof, titled Special Agent Bumper Ballantyne in the Hollywood Bubble. Art listens to classical or new age music while writing in the early morning and rewriting in the afternoon. Find out more on his website at arthurkearns.com. Join us again next time when on episode number 26, you'll hear my short story, Mystery in MB, from the Sisters in Crime Los Angeles chapter anthology, Entertainment to Die For. It's about a woman whose life is threatened by an unknown person. And on episode number 27, meet author Millicent Eidson, who writes Microbial Mysteries, or about viruses, bacteria, and parasites and their effects on humans. 
If you're listening on the podcast platform of your choice, please subscribe and leave a review or provide us with feedback. If you're on YouTube at Read Lori Fagan, please subscribe, give us a thumbs up, and click on the bell to be notified when a new episode has been released. And for some freebies, check out our Patreon page at Murder in the Air Mystery Theater. For more information, you can visit ReadLaurieFagan.com. Thanks so much for listening, and come back again, where you'll always find Murder in the Air. Murder in the Air